Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. John chapter 20. Just going to look at a few verses as we continue in our series, The Power and the Glory, that uh, has started on Palm Sunday and will last all the way through in what we call on the church calendar, Pentecost Sunday, and really the Sunday that follows that, Trinity Sunday. And uh, we're looking forward to all these messages between Easter and then. There's a lot of stuff that happened between Easter and Pentecost. There's a lot to preach from. And uh, some texts that we just don't ever visit because we think of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the praise God straight to the epistles. But there's a lot of stuff that took place between Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, Brother Shane, last week from the Southern Baptist Convention of Texas, took us through Luke 24 and Jesus' visit with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And today we're going to see another portrait of Jesus appearing to people after his resurrection. But I want to talk just a minute about Easter and Christmas. These are the quote-unquote high holy days of the Christian calendar. And packed into Christmas and Easter and Advent that surrounds Christmas and Holy Week that surrounds Easter. There's so much tradition and culture and faith and stuff packed into those seasons, those holiday seasons. We might know them, you might know them this morning as seasons of hope and joy and gladness and happiness. And for Christians, there is a big aspect of that, the person and work of Jesus, that he became a man and was born for us in Bethlehem, that he suffered and bled and died and was buried and rose again on Good Friday through Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday. But just as with Christmas, Easter and this season can bring its own questions. It can bring its own sorrows and its own doubts. Maybe you were here on Easter or you were worshiping with another congregation on Easter and while others shouted joyfully about the resurrection, and maybe you were in a church where they did the old liturgy where the pastor would say, Christ is risen, and the congregation responds, he is risen indeed, and people would be excited and joyful and happy. Maybe you, hearing those shouts of praise and triumph and joy about the resurrection, took a step back. Maybe your heart, for some reason today, is broken the loss of a loved one or a wayward family member, a wayward child. Maybe you're just far away from God and and that joy and that exuberance and that excitement over the resurrection of Jesus just doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Maybe this morning you do affirm that Jesus rose and your faith is in him. But the suffering and pain and trials of your life, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual or emotional, whatever it might be, Maybe you want to share in the exuberant praise, Christ is risen indeed, but there's still doubt. There's still questions in your mind. Maybe this morning you're an unbeliever and you just reject this whole thing altogether. You know the gospel, you know the story, 
You know what this is all about. Your parents might have taught you. Your grandparents might have taught you. You've been to Bible school. I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know why you're listening or watching this morning, but you just say, I don't believe in any of this. I reject it altogether. And maybe you would say, unless I see proof, unless I see proof of God, unless I see proof that Jesus rose again, I will never believe. And these weeks after Easter, we see Jesus' encounters with people in a similar situation, barely holding on to hope. Last week, Brother Shane took us through this picture with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he brought our attention to something that's there in the text. They were discouraged. They had left Jerusalem, going back home. The excitement was over. The guy who we thought that was, that was the Messiah, he died. They killed him. Sure, there's some people saying he rose again, but we're going on back home because who really knows? This week, we see another example of doubt. And it's from one, of, from one of Jesus' own disciples. And we look at this and we say, well, they should have known. The disciples should have known. That disciple should have known. Doesn't that sound like us at times in our walk of faith? You should have known. You should have believed. You should have trusted. Maybe you sit in the service like you're sitting in today and you see the joy and happiness in others, you don't quite know what to do with yourself. Why are these people singing so loudly and excitedly these songs that I really don't know from the radio or anywhere else? Why do they seem so in tune when we pray? Why, when we read the scriptures, does it burn in the hearts of others but not me? In these cases, we see a Jesus who desperately wants us to look to him. He wants us to shift our focus away from ourselves and away from our doubts and away from our trials and our circumstances and our problems and the problems of the world and he would have us to look to him. And I want you to see this today, struggling, hurting, doubting believer. I want you to see this today, skeptical, hard-hearted unbeliever. Jesus' command is so simple. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Look at John 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. This is the inspired and the inerrant and the infallible word of God. Number one, when you don't believe. When you don't believe. Verses 19 through 23 of this chapter are this glorious scene where after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples are huddled together in the upper room for fear, I don't know, confusion, whatever it may be. We're not told why they're there in the upper room, locked in again after the resurrection, but they're there. And it says the doors are locked. Presumably the windows are closed. They don't want anybody getting in. And Jesus suddenly stands in their midst. Now Jesus in his resurrection is still fully God and fully man. He still has his human nature that he took on in his incarnation, and he's still the same eternal God that he always was. There's something about this glorified body that Jesus now has, his resurrection body, where he can, if he wants to, just appear in a room. And he does just appear in the room. And he says to these disciples, peace be with you, in verses 19 through 23. These 10 disciples, Judas is gone, Thomas isn't there, 10 disciples there, and he says, peace be with you. And he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I like King James actually here, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And our Pentecostal brothers and sisters would tell you it's only one word, the Holy Ghost. Receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 24 says, though, there was one that wasn't present. And John, if you watch how he writes this, he says, now, Thomas. He wants us to focus in on Thomas. Now, Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared. And the others tell him in verse 25, we've seen the Lord. But he doesn't believe them. And we read this, and even from a child, right, when we're told this story, he's called Doubting Thomas, Stupid Thomas. Like, why wouldn't you believe this? You know better. And that's my, that might be how you still read the story today. How could he not believe? I want to suggest to you today that you and I wouldn't believe either. If we hadn't been there, if we hadn't seen the Lord, we're going to see that those disciples that even saw the Lord, they're still struggling to believe. Yet alone Thomas, who didn't see the Lord, We wouldn't have believed either. And so his doubt is reasonable. Doubt is very reasonable. His doubt is logical. It's simple. There's an understandable request here. I want to believe, but I will not believe unless I see him. I need proof. In fact, there's very graphic language here that we've sort of glossed over in our familiarity with the story. I want to see the scars in his hands and put my finger in the scars. And I want to see the wound in his side and I want to put my hand in it. And unless I do that, Thomas says in verse 25, I will never believe. I wonder if that sounds like someone in here today. Maybe you. You're not hateful against Christianity. You're not antagonistic toward the church or derogatory in your doubt. You just want proof. Now, I want to believe all this, and this is all very nice, and the singing was pretty, and the preaching's okay, a little bit long, but it's nice, okay? It's a nice thing to do on a Sunday morning with my family, but I don't know if I can go all in on this because I just need to see some proof. 
If I just saw one thing, one miracle, one sign, I want you to listen to me this morning, strong believers, mature believers in the room today. It's easy to look at folks as the disciples surely looked at Thomas that day and to scoff at their unbelief. It's easy for us believers, especially strong believers in your day, to look at unbelievers, to look at those who have rejected the gospel and for whatever reason are skeptical of Christianity. It's easy for us to look at them and to scoff at their unbelief. Well, why don't they get it? Oh, they'll get it one day. We get very threatening and angry in our tone. Remember today that we haven't all been through the same stuff. And what you might have been there for, such as these disciples who were there when Jesus came, what you might have been there for in your life, someone else may not have been there for. And it's not an excuse for their unbelief, but it's an invitation for us to pray for them and to share with them what God has done and to point them to Jesus. These disciples that were there, they seemed to believe. We see the Lord. We saw him, they said to Thomas. We saw him with our own eyes. Of course, they now believe, we think, because they saw. But Thomas has some understandable questions. Maybe some of you here today have some understandable questions. And those of us who are believers, instead of castigating those who doubt, we should pray for them. We should pray that these doubting unbelievers that may be in the room even today, maybe you know in your family, in your workplace, in your school, pray that they might know Jesus. Pray that you might point them to Jesus. Pray that hurting, struggling believers that may fall into doubt might come to see God's faithfulness and God's goodness once again. You may have been there in your life already. Pray for others to see the same thing you have. Pray that where there is unbelief, God, listen, God might create faith even today. There's no one in here right now that doesn't know a lost person. There's not a single individual that does not know a lost child, a lost family member, a lost coworker, a lost classmate, whatever the relation is. Maybe you're lost today. No one in here does not know a lost person. And I just want to ask you this morning, when's the last time you prayed for that lost person? When's the last time you prayed for that unbeliever? When is the last time you shared the gospel with them and told them you need to believe in Christ and be saved? When is the last time you did that? And then the second question here is, do you not believe that God can save them? Do we believe that God can save sinners? Amen. We believe that God can save sinners. The most hard-hearted, impenitent, unrepentant, unbelieving, skeptical, atheist, agnostic, whatever it is, belonging to a different world religion, a different philosophy, a different worldview, whatever it is that keeps them from coming to Christ, God is greater than that unbelief. And God can change anyone's hearts when he well pleases to do it. 
And so we ought to pray that God will do it and share the gospel with them. Number two, when Jesus shows up, verses 26 through 27. Notice on verse 26 something interesting. Eight days later, (laughs) Jesus is in no hurry to come and prove anything to anybody. Think about Lazarus when he died. You know, he hears, Jesus hears word that his friend Lazarus is sick. He stays two more days where he is, knowing that there's a day's journey to get to Lazarus. So he shows up what we would consider four days too late. Well, you know how that story ends. The stone is rolled away. Jesus brings Lazarus out from the tomb alive. There's something similar here, I think. We have these eight days that pass. We see that the disciples are still in an upper room. Now, a lot of preachers have made a lot of this, that the upper room is this place of doubt and fear and confusion. And maybe it is. There seems to be some indication of that. They're there. They seem to be hiding. The doors are locked. Again, we see the doors locked. We don't want to make too much of it, but I want you to notice the seeming doubt and questioning, listen, of even those disciples who had seen Jesus. Eight days before this, they saw Jesus. With their own eyes. They touched him, presumably. They watched him eat. They sat with him. Eight days later, they're not out preaching the gospel. They're not out planting churches in the world. They're back, huddled in the upper room. In our frailty and our weakness and our sin and our hard-heartedness, I want you to keep this in mind. Doubt can always creep in and unbelief can always take hold. And even the most mature, strongest believer. Added to that, Jesus has now waited eight days. Jesus knows he doesn't need to prove anything to Thomas. He doesn't need to prove anything to the other disciples. Jesus knows that all the signs and all the miracles in the world cannot change anyone's heart. And so appearing to Thomas, Jesus knows, isn't going to make some sort of difference. All they need is God to create faith in them. Nevertheless, listen, with no need to come, with no need to show up, with no need to prove anything to anyone, amid their fear and their unbelief and their cowardice and their doubt, Jesus appears to them again. What grace and mercy is there in that, that even in their doubt and their questioning, and now Thomas has come and he's expressed doubt with his mouth, I will never believe Jesus still shows up in their midst. And what would we expect this message to be? First of all, you ten. I already saw you one time. You already saw me one time. We've already done this. And you're still here. You haven't gone out into the world proclaiming what you've seen, declaring the gospel. What do you think you're doing? Are you stupid? Are you ignorant? How would we, how would we respond to those disciples? But Jesus comes. He stands among them. And in verse 26, he says the same thing he said eight days earlier. Presumably lifting his hands toward them in blessing, he says, Peace. 
be with you. Jesus offers, again, his peace. Into their fear, into their doubt, into their questioning, into their confusion, into their unbelief, Jesus whispers, peace. Verse 27, if anyone deserved it, though, I mean, these, these ten might be excusable, but Thomas, I will never believe unless I see, unless I touch. If anyone deserved a good scolding, it was Thomas. Nicknamed Doubting Thomas, after all. But Jesus comes. He doesn't say, peace to you, except you, Thomas. Peace to everybody except you over there. He offers his peace to all of them. And then he turns to Thomas specifically. And not chiding. And not scolding. And not reprimanding. And it's, it's almost a blasphemous request from Thomas, isn't it? I will not believe you, God, unless Jesus shows up right now. And I can put my hands in the scars of the things that held him to the tree and the spear that killed him. He thank God, Jesus would be like, who do you think you are? But he shows up and he says, peace to you. And he turns to Thomas in verse 27. He says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And then we have this tender command from Jesus to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What do we do with this? Better question, what would we do with this? What would we say to unbelievers? What do we say to unbelievers? Why don't you get it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You watch the news. Those people don't have it. But I'm sure glad I got it. Oh, I'm so glad I figured it out. I'm so glad I made the right choice. I'm glad I made the right decision. Sounds an awful lot like a parable that Jesus told of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they go to the temple to pray together. Remember, the Pharisee stands tall and proud with his head lifted to heaven. No shame, no repentance. God, I thank you, he says, that I am not like that sinner over there. Thank you that I had the sense to know better than to do my life the way he did. Thank you that I had the wherewithal to believe what you said as opposed to him. And Jesus says that tax collector comes before God, does not lift his head, rather beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus asks, which one of them went home justified? The answer is clear, isn't it? The one who knew he was a sinner and needed God's forgiveness. 
Oh, how often we can slip into that pharisaical spirit with the world and unbelievers around us, maybe even unbelievers that you're close to, and we begin to think that we have faith in Christ because somehow we made the right choice, the right decision somewhere. We willed this for ourselves. We did this on our own. We figured it out. Praise the Lord. And I don't know why they don't. When we ought to remember that we would never have either except for the grace of God. We just sang it today in the choir song. I was blinded by my sin. You know what blind means, right? You cannot see. I had no ears to hear your voice. Couldn't hear. Did not know your love within. Furthermore, I didn't even have a taste, the song says, for heaven's joys. Didn't want it, didn't care. Then what? Then your spirit gave me life. And after he gave you life, then he opened the word to you. And then the gospel of God's peace made sense to you. And you came to it. Oh, can we not pray and believe that God can do that in the heart of any unbeliever? And instead of scoffing and chiding and scolding, and instead of puffing our own selves up because we made sense of it all, why don't we pray that God would make sense of it for them? Sometimes we can forget that even those of us who have seen Jesus, well, we can find our way back into the upper room really quickly too. Even those of us who consider ourselves strong, mature believers, rooted in the word, filled with the spirit, doubt can come in on us too, can it? Questions, confusion... We're forgetting that if Jesus, by his spirit, had not opened our eyes to believe, we would have never believed. Forgetting that even in our seasons of unbelief and our doubt and our suffering, Jesus comes to us and says, peace. What does Jesus do in the face of doubt and unbelief and confusion? You see it here. He comes into the room and he says, peace. He holds out his scars to us. And he says, bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Bring your confusion. Bring your hurt. Jesus can handle it. But you have to bring it. You have to bring it to him. And his response, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 42 verse 3, his response will not be to bruise a broken reed or to snuff out a smoldering wick. No, but he points us away from ourselves. He points us away from our works and our doubts and our questions and our circumstances, and he points us to him. He points us to his work on our behalf. It's why he is more than willing to show the scars to Thomas. Look what I did for your unbelief. Look at the price I paid for your sin and your stubbornness and your pride and your arrogance, Thomas, and everybody in here today. Look what I did on behalf of that. Here is your peace. Here is your answer in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. We think sometimes, man, if Jesus would just show up today, not the second coming, mind you, because he is going to 
rain down some, you know what, on, on his second coming in judgment. But if Jesus were to show up today as he did then, we often think he'd be kicking butt and taking names and, man, this thing would be over real quick. No, I think if Jesus were to show up today to the most calloused, unbelieving sinner that you know, he would show his scars and he would say, here's peace for you if you want it. Do not disbelieve, but believe. May we be people that point to Jesus, that point to his scars, and who invite them to believe. Number three, when you believe. Verses 28 and 29, Thomas sees, and in verse 28, he is led to exclaim, my Lord and my God. Not only does Thomas pronounce that Jesus is his Lord and master and teacher and rabbi and all that could be up under that title, Lord. Oh, he takes it a step further, doesn't he? You are my Lord and you are my God. Even more surprising is that Jesus does not rebuke him. I mean, you can't even fall down on your face before an angel in the Bible without the angel getting you up real quick. No, 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 no. I'm an angel. He's God. Don't worship me. But Jesus here with this man in front of him who has just exclaimed, you are Lord and God, does not rebuke him because it's exactly who he is. He is Lord and God. And in fact, he blesses him. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus addresses it with Thomas head on, doesn't he? Thomas, I know you believe now because you see me now. But he says this other thing. Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. Now, he didn't have to say that. Everybody in that room at that time did see and did believe, presumably. And Jesus didn't have to add this extra blessing for those who do not see and yet still believe. I think this is there for us. I think he, uh, as he prayed for us in John 17, when he prayed not just for these disciples, but for those who will believe in him through their word, that's you and me even today, I think he meant this for us. You believe because you see, Thomas, and that's well and good. You got eyes in your head, you can see, right? But blessed are those, and you could even read in there, a moreover, who do not see and yet believe. You may think, well, of course Thomas believed. He saw. Seeing is believing. And this just goes to further my point, Pastor. If I could just see, if I just saw one miracle, one thing, one sign, well, I would believe too. And all my doubts and all my questions would just go away. How many signs did Jesus do? How many miracles did Jesus do? John tells us they're not even able to count them all. 
But the Jewish religious leaders still demanded more at every turn. He had just fed a multitude of people with bread and fish, and they turn around and they come to him, Jesus, show us a sign so that we'll know who you are. Didn't convince any of them. They still didn't believe. Oh, what about these disciples? They presumably saw the majority of Jesus' miracles. They would have been right there. Eyewitnesses, Peter says, of his divine glory and majesty. Surely they got it. You know the disciples as well as I do. And you know they didn't get it. Even now, they're struggling to get it. So the question is, did any of the signs, did any of the miracles make anyone believe? The answer is no. And here's the kicker. It wouldn't today either. The disciples still aren't getting it. The Jews go on to kill Jesus with Rome happy to be rid of this nuisance. And you think you'd be better than them? You really think just one sign, God, just show me one thing and I'll believe. No questions, no doubts. I'll follow Jesus. I'll do what you say. The whole biblical testimony tells us that you won't. In Luke 16, we actually have an account of this. Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. And the rich man dies. And Jesus tells us that he's in hell being tormented by the flames. And Lazarus, not the Lazarus that Jesus rose, Lazarus from the story. Lazarus is dead, but he is in Abraham's bosom in paradise, whatever that means. He's there in the presence of the Lord. He's at peace. And the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, please send, my, send Lazarus back to my brothers so he can warn them not to come to this dreadful place. Makes sense, doesn't it? Send Lazarus. Send him back from the dead to preach to my brothers so they won't wind up in hell with me. Remember what Abraham says in Luke 16, verse 31? They have Moses and the prophets. And if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone is raised from the dead. Now, of course, we know this is true even in the resurrection of Jesus, don't we? He is risen from the dead, and there's still doubt. And there's still rejection and there's still unbelief. And this is a simple principle. Believing, saving faith cannot be attained by sight. It wouldn't have made a lick of difference in those brothers' lives that Lazarus rises from the dead and goes to preach to them. Because what's he going to preach to them except the scriptures, except Moses and the prophets who they already don't believe. And Abraham says if they don't believe them, nothing will work. Miracles and signs can bring mental assent. We can acknowledge that something is true, something has happened, but that's not the same thing as biblical saving faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us the definition of saving faith, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence or the assurance of things that are unseen. And so by the very definition of biblical saving faith, it is not something one sees. But it is a certain assurance in the middle of not seeing. 
So here's the bottom line. You could see it all. All the miracles, all the signs, every prayer you asked for, every prayer request you brought to God, he answered the way you wanted it to, when you wanted it, and you could still be an unbeliever. It's interesting to note where Abraham points, isn't it? You don't need a resurrection. You don't need a a sign and a wonder and a miracle. What do you need? You need the scriptures. John, look at these next verses. I'm not going to preach these for very long. These two verses here. Now, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He did many signs. Many miracles. John says, I could keep going about the miracles and the signs and the wonders and all the awesome stuff that Jesus did. Verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, according to the things written, you may have life in his name. Whether we're talking about Moses and the prophets or the writings of John when he says these things have been written, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about scripture, the word of God. We're talking about the Bible. And the word of God alone in the Bible is able to save, able to change, able to bring faith. Listen, all the signs and all the miracles could never do what the Holy Spirit does through the proclamation of God's word. Where is the power of God into salvation? Romans 1.16, you know where it is. It's in the gospel of Jesus It's in the proclamation of that gospel. And so here's the gospel today. Jesus has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the command for you today, no matter where you are or what you think or what you believe or what your opinions are, what your feelings are, the command from God for all of us is the same. Repent and believe that gospel. God, may, he, he very well may give you a sign. He might give you a miracle. It might be eight days, it might be eight months, it might be eight years. So here's the thing, it might be Never. And the question remains, will you believe even if you never see? I want to say something that might sound odd to you today, that believing without seeing might be a better thing. Because a faith that is strong in the midst of not seeing is a faith that is rooted in what cannot be seen. And it's a faith that is untouched by the things of the world. It's not affected by your suffering and your trials and your circumstances and your pain and your feelings because it doesn't rest on those things. A faith that is based and rooted in that which is not seen is biblical faith in Jesus. And that is resting on something that's even better than a sign or a miracle or a wonder. Many churches today, many groups today, pastors, denominations, 
are convinced that what the church needs in the world today is more miracles. And what the church is missing are the signs from God that we saw in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Where are the healings? Where's the prophecies? Where's the visions? Where's the dreams? Where's all this stuff? Where's all the stuff in our churches, they ask? Shouldn't it be there? Let's do that stuff. All the while, they have closed their Bibles, moved them to the side, and said, we don't need this anymore. This just isn't cutting it anymore. We need flash We need stuff. We need experience. Just go through the Bible sometime and see how many times the Bible points to itself for what we need. The Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God. Today your fear may be great. Your sorrow may be great. Your doubt, your confusion may be great. And if your faith is dependent on those things... If your faith is dependent on your senses, where does that leave you? But if your faith is in Jesus and in his word, there is a solid rock and a foundation for your soul. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Today I invite you to see with the eyes of faith, to see the wounds in his hands and his side, to to know the breath of the Holy Spirit, to hear his voice in his word. Because Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, that what we have here is more sure than any miracle, any experience, and any sign. Believers today, in all of your suffering and all of your pain, I want you to hear peace from Jesus today. He doesn't scold you for your questions. He doesn't scold you for your hurt or your pain or even your doubt, but he says peace. And he invites you to look to him once again. Unbelievers here today, we don't have miracles and signs to show you. Even if we did, it wouldn't make a difference. We do have the word of God and the the gospel, which is the power of God to make you believe. And I pray that he'll do it in your heart today. One last little closing point that isn't, isn't in the text here today necessarily. Number four, when we see Jesus. One day, all the fears... And all the tears and all the doubts and the sorrows will fade away. As we sang earlier, then the faith will be sight as Jesus comes into view. John tells us, the same John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, that on that day we will be like him because we will See him as he is. On that day, we will no longer walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. And we should long for that day. 
Paul says we should love his appearing. But until then, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. Believers today and unbelievers, these things are written that you may believe. And the invitation to you is simple today. It's the invitation that Jesus gave Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who convicts men of sin, who creates faith, who eliminates doubt. My prayer today, God, is that as we sing and as we close our service, you would do that for people in this congregation today. For believers that are here, that are struggling, that are hurting, that are broken, that need a touch from you, enable them this morning to stop holding back, to, to stop repressing, to come to you and say, I got, I got serious issues, I've got questions, I've got doubts, I've got hurts, so that they can hear you whisper peace to their souls. God, for unbelievers that are here in this room today, I ask by your Holy Spirit and by your gospel, you would draw them today to Jesus. That you would right now, right now, even as I pray, that you would create faith in their hearts. You would stir them to repentance and bring them to Christ. God, do it now. We know that you can. We believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.